From the School of Broadcast and Cinematic Arts at Central Michigan University, welcome to Depth of Field, a podcast highlighting the careers, experiences, and accomplishments of our broadcast and cinematic arts graduates. I'm your host, Patty Williamson. Join me as I chat with media pros who reflect on their time at CMU, their lives and careers after graduation. Along the way, they'll share advice they have for anyone looking to work in a wide variety of media fields. And that's why we call it Depth of Field. So Tim Jackson, thanks so much for joining me today for Depth of Field. How are you? Are you in Chicago today? My pleasure, Patty. Great to see you. Great to speak with you. I am in greater Chicago. So Crystal Lake, Illinois is my, my home and home office, which is um, just south of the Wisconsin border. So we're about 70 miles north of the city of Chicago. I figured I had to check with you because I know that you're a bit of a jet setter. Uh, every time <laughs> I talk to you, you're in a, a different country or a different city. Uh, and that seems to be part of your life with the, the work that you've been doing. Very, very much so. In fact, uh, myself, like many other people, were going stir crazy during uh, the, the you know, last three quarters of 2020 and into part of 2021 when travel was essentially shut down, both for business and and personal uh, reasons. So we uh, are um, back at it again now, and it's really nice to, to be back seeing friends and clients around the world. So what is your current job title? So currently I, uh, I work for a company called Globecast and Globecast is effectively the media services division of the very large French telecom company, Orange, which started out historically as France Telecom. So it was a government owned telephone company, much like the French version of, of AT&T. So it's a multi-billion dollar company with 157,000 employees around the world. And uh, Globecast is a much smaller part. We just do media services, business to business media services. And I handle sales and marketing. My exact title is uh, Senior Vice President Sales and Marketing for the Americas. So my team is based in the US and we handle uh, any customer that's based in any of the Americas. So all the way from, from Canada down to the, the tip of uh, Argentina. When you were a student in BCA at Central Michigan, is this where you saw yourself? Not really. And it's, a, it's an interesting thing. And when I was a student, so this is going back to 1982 to 1986, the focus on you know, broadcasting or, or even electronic media or communications, you know, and we make it more general, you were going to go to work for a radio station, television station, network, newspaper, something like that. And this whole business of satellite communications and, and global cable programming was really just starting out. You know, you had HBO and CNN and all these other networks, which were really domestically focused. And it, it really took on a a big turn when all of them branched out internationally and it turned into a big global business. So it, it uh, I guess in a manner of speaking, being involved in mass communications in the television industry is absolutely where I saw myself, uh, you know, when I first walked in the doors of, of Moore Hall in September, 1982, it just was not necessarily in this exact area of focus because it almost didn't exist at the time. So going back to 1982, what brought you to the School of Broadcast and Cinematic Arts at CMU. I think the clearly the thing for me was the ability to walk in the doors as a freshman and, and get your hands dirty in, in radio and television and, and also film to a, to a lesser extent, which didn't really carry too much interest for me. But I was working for um, my local radio station in Midland, Michigan, handling news and sports. So I already had a, a lot of on-air experience in, in radio, but nothing in television, which was where my main interest was. But to be able to walk in and, and jump right in and start doing uh, radio on air and then moving into 
uh, sports in a, in a department that was incredibly welcoming to new students uh, with great faculty. I, you know, I toured a few schools around, uh, around the state and around the country to see what had the best fit. But, you know, it was CMU by far, just because for me, it was less about the academics and more about the hands-on lab experience that you could get right away. What other activities were you involved in in BCA when you were a student? For me, I'm one of those people that uh, basically lived at Moore Hall. So I was really, really tied in quite in depth with radio. And for me, it was news and sports. Uh, I didn't really have, even though I did it in school quite a bit, I didn't really have a big affinity to be a DJ and spin records um, that, that I didn't really find that fun. Well, I found it fun, but it wasn't really professionally rewarding as much as doing news and sports. So I did a, a tremendous amount of that. With sports, uh, we really um, started out the whole uh, WMHW women's basketball broadcasting business. They had done it for a number of years with just selected home games, but we decided to you know, see if the uh, athletic department would help us out by having us go on the road. And it started with uh, the 1983 CMU women's basketball team going to a NCAA division, divisional game in uh, Maryland. And we were fortunate enough to have the athletic department sponsor that. And that really started the continuation of doing all of the home and road games for women's basketball. So that, that was really my passion was doing that. And even at the time, I think, you know, CMU women's basketball continues to have an extremely high profile and it, it certainly did then. Uh, so a lot of time doing that during basketball season. And then during football season, I was heavily involved with MHTV sports on the TV side. I, I really enjoyed the balance of being able to do radio and television, because even though your subject matter is, is the same, the way you approach those two activities through the different mediums was just fun and enjoyable. What are some of your fondest memories at CMU? I think, well, some of them I had, uh, I took the introductory lab courses. So I don't know if they're the same numbers, but it was uh, BCA 222 and 223, which was intro, you know, the first lab course for radio and the first lab course for television. I did that in the summer. Uh, the professors at the time were, were Dr. Jerry Henderson, who has since passed away, and, and Chris Laporte, who is somewhere, but I don't know where, but those were my two professors. And we had a, just a tremendous amount of fun in the summer. You know, it's a lot late, more laid back, but we still got allowed out of it and, and had a great time in those two classes. Some of my first remotes with MHTV Sports, doing some football games with some incredibly old, antiquated and very bad equipment and trying to make it work. It really brought the team together because, you know, when you have equipment that's not always working and you have to make something happen out of it, you really develop a great camaraderie with the people you're working with. The elections that we did, presidential elections uh, in the newsroom for WMHW was really enjoyable. Just all sorts of very, very fun things. You know, I think I, when I look at the classes, I don't know that there's anything aside from those summer classes that was anything more for me than really just, you know, checking the box to get the classes done. But it was really just being in that building and, and working with some incredibly driven students and some very motivating professors and other teachers that really, uh, really made it fun and, and enjoyable and rewarding. I think almost everyone, when they reflect back at their time in BCA, they talk about the friends and the camaraderie and that teamwork that you build, whether you have great equipment or back in the day, not so great equipment, that you all learn that you have to work as a team. Have you found that as you've worked professionally as well? No question. No, no, no question. One of the uh, biggest things I did in my career was building out two television facilities for Discovery Networks as they expanded globally into Latin America and Asia from the U.S. And it's really the same thing. You're bringing together a whole group of people, staff people, contractors, vendors, suppliers, local government officials, building people, and trying to get things to work 
when it doesn't always happen smoothly, having to pivot, having to change. And that's something you you really learn in a live environment. I mean, anyone that's done live television and even live radio, you, you realize that it's not always going to go the way it has to. And I think anyone that's experienced that and worked in that environment realizes that you have to really be able to think quickly, react, change. Uh, you can't be stuck in your ways. You got to be able to make amendments. It, it's really helped me a lot in my career, which um, quite honestly, if I didn't have that hands-on experience at CMU and uh, spent four years doing all of that fun stuff, I probably would, uh, no, I definitely would not be where I am today at all. How did you make that transition from graduating from college and getting into the real world? Well, you know, in many ways, I think it was easier then. And the reason for that is, you know, when you look at someone that's got a, a particularly good resume, and there are lots of them, these days, all you do is you load it up on LinkedIn, or you use some service that is basically like doing keyword searches. There doesn't have to be any relationship between the human resources department at a hiring company and the individual. But back then, you had to write a paper, you had to have a paper resume and write a uh, written cover letter and address it in an envelope with a stamp to a person. And they had to open these up and look at them. And clearly, you were only getting resumes from people that were motivated to go through that work. So right now, there's no effort at all to apply for a job, right? You get on the keyboard, you do a couple of keystrokes, you've applied for the job. But, but back then, it was a lot more difficult. So I decided at CMU, I was going to go to, to one of three places. One was down to Detroit and work for Pro-Am Sports, which became Fox Sports Detroit or go to New York or go to LA. I had a friend in high school who went the trade school route. He didn't go to college, but he was a very skilled television repairman. And this is back in the day when people would have their televisions repaired. Uh, today, we you know, buy a TV and when it doesn't work, we recycle it and buy another TV for 300 bucks at Best Buy. But back then people would buy TVs, they'd have them repaired. That was his job. And we decided we were just gonna move to LA on a whim. He was able to apply for a job out of the Sunday edition of the Los Angeles Times that needed a TV repairman. So he was hired before we even got out to LA. I moved out there, rented a typewriter and sat on the floor of our apartment, um, picking up the Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety every single day to apply for the want ads for jobs in the television industry. And that is exactly how I got the job. Went down to Hollywood one morning, picked up a Hollywood Reporter and the back was a, an ad for uh, master control tape operators needed. So. I filled out the letter, mailed it, and got a call back, and in I went. And what was that job that you ended up getting, and how did that sort of begin your career trajectory to where you are today? Yeah, so that, that job was with a company called IDB Communications, which was one of the very early satellite communications companies. And they, they did a number of things, including dragging satellite antennas around the country doing sporting events, both radio and TV, for all of the networks. So they had a fleet of trucks that would travel around. The job I was hired for was master control for Prime Ticket, which is, I think they rebranded it Prime Ticket again, but it's effectively Fox Sports LA. So it was the regional sports network that did the Lakers. So I worked in our master control facility. At the time, the network only operated 4 p.m. to midnight. So, and two of those days were just taped content, depending on the sports schedule. So I would go in, work 4 p.m. to midnight on a regular shift, sometimes with overtime and, and do that work. So that was my first professional job in in the business. With that particular company, though, because they were so diverse in the activities they did, I, I made it known to my bosses that, hey, I want to get out on the road. I always had the desire to be traveling and be out on the road. And I wanted to be out on the road and learn to work these satellite antennas and drag them around to Monday night football or college games or whatever, whatever. So I ended up making the move into that, which turned into mo much more of a technology and engineering job than an operations job. But uh, 
the interesting thing is when you're on the road as an operator of a, a satellite truck or a production truck or you're the engineer in charge of a production truck, you have to fulfill so many roles there. You're the boss, you're the slave, you're the sales guy. You have to make decisions very quickly and uh, do all of those things that really help you grow as an individual. It seems interesting. I feel like there aren't a ton of people who can really combine the technical knowledge with the sales side. Is that something that's common in the industry? Well, it, it's interesting. I didn't make a move into sales until 2002. So it's fairly recently. So my entire uh, job history from graduating in 86 to 2002 was all operations and engineering. My role at Discovery was, was senior director of uh, technical operations uh, and distribution for Discovery. So it was all that sort of role. It was when I got uh, into another company called Pan Amsat in the early 2000s, where I saw what the salespeople were doing, saw that their customers were my former peers at the broadcasters and thought, well, let's see, salespeople just by their nature can make a whole lot more money. I have the entire knowledge of doing this. You just have to make that jump to be able to work with a lower base, but a much higher upside. It's worked out incredibly well. But yeah, it's it's very personality driven. You have to be able to have that personality to be a salesperson. You have to be able to accept rejection very easily. Um, and you have to have a lot more adaptability. I think, you know, the operations and engineering stuff is fairly consistent. Lots of different projects. And as I mentioned before, you have to be able to pivot and change. And there's a lot of excitement in that. But sales is a whole different ballgame. And there are some people that make that move quite well and others that uh, don't enjoy it so much. From the days you were working more on the technical side, what were some of your most exciting experiences that you had? All right. So there's probably two that stand out. Uh, well, in college, I was doing a lot of work with Monday Night Football. One of our former professors at CMU, a guy named Bob Bronlich, who just retired from ESPN, was in charge of all of the uh, production managers at ABC Sports. And he developed a great rapport with many CMU folks. And in fact, one of the one of my uh, uh, classmates from, from the 80s, John Lachance, uh, went to work for Bob, and now he's running all of the production management for uh, college sports at ESPN still. So we, we both of us did a lot of work with, with ABC in the time on the network side, and that was really fun, doing some of the Monday Night Football games when Howard Cosell was there, some of the, the big events that, that happened around the country. It was all fascinating. But I think professionally, it was probably spending a month in Antarctica with uh, the Korean uh, research team as they were building a new research base. They um, decided to hire us at IDB to bring some satellite equipment down, and, and we spent uh, a month doing communications and comms and, uh, and video from there. The other time was uh, traveling to China as part of the media team, overseeing satellite communications for CBS, the European Broadcasting Union, NHK out of Japan, for a meeting between uh, Chinese President Li Peng and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev of Russia back in, uh, I think it was 1989-ish, and that turned into the Tiananmen Square Massacre. So that was supposed to be a two-week trip to Beijing, and it ended up being well over a month, and we had to evacuate people and equipment to Hong Kong, and getting out of town was crazy. So you know, those are two examples, as well as you know, half a dozen Olympics around the world. Just lots of, lots of really fun places. It seems like some of that travel might be a little scary at times. Hearing about Tiananmen Square, were you ever worried when you were traveling? Well, on that one, it was just getting out because we had gone to Beijing um, a year before with President Bush. So one of the activities I did at IDB was all of the international 
communications travel in support of President Reagan for the last uh, two years of his presidency and President George H.W. Bush for the first two years of his. So four years of, of presidential travel around the world. And we'd gone into Beijing, so we had a lot of relationships with the embassy and other government officials that were working on behalf of the U.S. while we were in China since this media trip came after the, the official trip. So that helped out a little bit. But yeah, getting out of town then was incredibly scary because they were starting to shut things down and it, it wasn't as easy as it might have been. But aside from that, everything else had been pretty straightforward. I didn't do any of the war zone stuff at all. That was a little bit after I started doing some of the, the satellite stuff on the road. But I have a lot of colleagues that were in uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq when when that was going on. So they were a lot more exposed to the the bad stuff than I was. Is there anywhere left that you still want to travel to that you haven't made it to? Or have you pretty much seen the world at this point? I've worked on every continent and 40 some countries. So there's a lot of countries left. I think, uh, you know, one I haven't been to that I really want to see is New Zealand. I made it to Israel, which was really high on my list because it's such a fascinating place which, with such uh, interesting and diverse culture. Just made it there several years ago. But uh, I would say New Zealand is at the top of the list. Made it to Scotland for the first time with my family last year right before COVID, and then a bunch more provinces in Canada. Been to every fifth, all 50 states and have loved all of them. So, um, but yeah, just scattered places here and there, but no, no place I really want to go to work just at this point, vacation and checking out some places I've missed. That totally makes sense. So we don't really have classes on satellites at uh, CMU and BCA. So how did you take that stuff that you learned within our program and apply it to the technical stuff that you were doing for the first half of your career. Yeah, so that, you know, that's interesting because it was all hands-on learning by people that were there that, that would train people. So I had some really good people that trained me. I then trained other people. That's how it was because at the time, the only people that really learned satellite communications were technicians coming out of the, uh, the U.S. military that, that learned that as of one of their uh, occupational specialties for, for military satellite communications. Um, there were really only a couple places that did that. Uh, basically, the phone companies, um, AT&T, uh, primarily had the, the commercial satellite earth stations in the country prior to 1986 when it got deregulated. So it, it was all just very opportunistic, hands-on learning. I ended up at a place that did video and satellite communications, and that's how I became adept at the satellite communication side of it. But there was clearly no place to really train that. And there really still isn't, you know, people still come into a, a facility with backgrounds and other things, and they just learn that stuff on the side. Satellite now has become, you know, increasingly less of a big deal than it was. Now it's simply one of the many tools you can use for distributing content. And at my company today, it, it's starting to dwindle more and more as IP technologies and, and just using the internet, bonded cellular, and all these other things can transmit things to different places for a lot cheaper and with a lot less equipment than satellite does. Now that you're on the sales side of things, how has that sort of changed your work-life balance, I guess, would be the best way to put it? Well, it's, you know, technologists, engineers, ops people, whatever you call it, have a lot more uh, involvement in shift work and people that travel can sometimes be away for days on end. Um, I'm in total control of my schedule now. So when I look at when I'm going to travel to meet customers or or going out on the road for something, we decide when we're going to do it. So we've, uh, in fact, just this morning, I decided with some of my team that we got to go see some customers before the end of the year. And that'll be the week of the 13th, because that works for family purposes. And it works for business purposes, not going to travel anymore after that week. So we'll go out see some customers and then be back home for the whole rest of the year. So it's, it's really nice having that 
you know, especially later in the career to be able to have that flexibility and control over what you do and still meet all of your needs. So there's, there's nobody pushing the buttons about when we go anywhere other than myself right now, with the exception being the trade shows that we uh, would generally attend as, as part of an industry in our own company. And what are some of those trade shows that you tend to hit? So there's, there's two around the world that anybody really involved in the, the global television industry would, would attend. One is um, the first one every year is uh, National Association of Broadcasters in Las Vegas, Nevada, which is always in April. It uh, was canceled this year, but it'll be back on for April of 2022. And the other one is its counterpart for Europe and, uh, and generally the rest of the world. It really attracts Europe, Africa, even more people from Asia, really. And that's called IBC. And that is in Amsterdam every September. Uh, that was pushed to December, so we'll be going out there. Um, oh, gee, now it's next month. Uh, we'll be going out there in December to uh, to do uh, IBC 2021, and then that'll be back on its track for 2022 in September. So those two shows are about six months apart, and it really makes for for good coverage of getting a, a view onto what's happening in the industry in the United States, and then later in the uh, in the rest of the world. Uh, the other show that has you know, this show really ebbs and flows, and it's the Consumer Electronics Show, and it's one that pretty much everyone's familiar with because it gets so much general press every year in January, and that's in January in Vegas. It's a gigantic show, and that one tends to set the trends for everything in consumer electronics. And some years, there's a big media component to it. Uh, a few years ago, it was huge as, as 4K TV, and then even before that, if you remember 3D TV, which had a, about an 18-month lifespan before it fizzled out. But but 4K was really big, and then uh, video on smaller devices. So several years ago, we were always uh, attending, uh, and a couple of times we had some hospitality suites at Consumer Electronics Show. But lately, that's really pivoted to automotive tech, um, particularly self-driving cars, robotics, AR, augmented reality, and virtual reality. Uh, so the media impact is much less. So rather than attend that as a group, I I or, or, or I'll send one of my team members, just go take a look at CES. But yeah, really, it's just those two in, in Amsterdam and uh, in Las Vegas. Do you have any predictions about what the next big technology will be in the media industry? I'm really interested in seeing how Zuckerberg's rebrand of Facebook's parent to Meta and his vision for the metaverse, what that means for, for the B2B space. You know, I'm not sure, so sure working for a large company if I want to hand over a whole lot of the business activities to Meta or to Facebook, nor do I particularly want to live my life inside a virtual reality environment. You know, I want to, as we've talked about throughout the whole discussion here, I like being out and about and seeing people face to face and going to places. I'm really interested in seeing what effect that will have on in-person relationships and uh, in-person activities. So that's something more on the social side what we're seeing trending on the, um, the media side right now is a dramatic and very rapid shift towards content creators going to direct cons to consumer with their content. So we see that with, with Apple TV Plus and you know, Paramount's doing it, Peacock's doing it, Disney Plus has done that for some time now, Netflix and Hulu creating their own content. So all of the middlemen, middle people, middle, middleware, and by that I mean folks like cable companies and satellite companies and UVerse and dish and all of this kind of stuff and sling what's going to be their long-term viability not really owning content but being the the middleware for this other content um, that remains to be seen and that's kind of where we sit in my company we're a media services provider for creators of content and uh, it's really important that you know we make sure that there's relevance for us going forward if if that middle part is being removed and it's creator direct to consumer 
if students were interested in doing something along the lines of what you do, what would your advice to them be? What we do now, and if you look at where people come in the door to work at our company, it really is television master control and monitoring. There's and there's also a real big crossover with IT now. So everything is is basically digital. Almost all routing of video is done on an IP layer. So um, just having a good understanding of that kind of thing. I mean, coming into my business, it's almost 100% technical. And moving into sales in my group, you have to have a very strong understanding of the operations and, and engineering technologies behind what you're selling because our customers are all engineers. So you can't really say, we're going to take somebody with sales background, have them come in and sell the kind of stuff we sell. It's, it's pretty advanced stuff. And we, we don't do a lot of volume at all. It's very relationship-based. So for someone to break in, it's really you know starting to work at any of these programmers, uh, any of these multitude of places um, in kind of a basic level of customer support, troubleshooting, operations, and you know, the nice thing with all of these companies uh, expanding, and there's a whole lot more opportunities now than there used to be. The, it's really opened up, but it's, um, it's interesting to see where it's going for sure. That sort of touches on what my next question was going to be, which is what direction would you point students in these days if they're just getting ready to graduate? Where do you think the next growth industry is going to be? Like, what should they be looking out for? Clearly, the medium we're using right now, podcasting, has been a godsend for audio. Now, there's lots of them out there. There's thousands and thousands of, of them out there. But for people that want to you know, create really nice content, Wondery is a company that does some incredibly good radio drama. And I, I grew up listening to the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. I'm a huge fan of radio drama. And having those available in podcast form now is, is tremendous. So um, I don't know that there's a place you go to get a job. I mean, just really having those creative ideas and make sure you align with somebody that can help you market them. Uh, there's no, no shortage of artistry creativity and good production values in podcasting. The, the challenge is how do you get to the top of those lists through through marketing and distribution? So that's something where, you know, there's probably a lot of areas to grow in, in that regard. You know, you've got the big boys like Spotify and Wondery out there that that aggregate content from places, but are there other opportunities? So that that on the audio side and on, on the video side, Hulu and YouTube on the commercial side of YouTube, um, Apple TV Plus, Netflix, all of the branded consumer platforms that are launching with all of the, you know, the named broadcasters. And, you know, there's, there's opportunities everywhere. All of these companies have very vibrant internship programs too. And, and, you know, certainly as you know, if you are able to get an internship with a company that you're interested carrying on those relationships can very often translate into a permanent employment afterwards. So that's what I would look at is, you know, trying to figure out, first of all, what, where do you want to go and what do you want to do? That's a geographic question as, as well as, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you go to work or you sit down at your desk and you do your work, what is it that's going to um, give you some internal feeling or reward for that? And try and try and know that before you go out and, and look for a job that you're stuck with. So what's next for you? I think, well, I am incredibly happy doing what I'm doing here at, uh, at Globecast, especially, you know, my boss is in Los Angeles. We're both on the executive team of the overall company, and we report to that group in Paris. So we have the privilege of being able to get on the road to Paris. We were both in um, Zurich, Switzerland a couple of weeks ago for an executive retreat, and we're going to be back in Amsterdam. We'll probably end up in Paris uh, early in 2022. So that aspect of international travel and working with some really bright people around the world on our team, I, I just really like this company and 
I see myself kind of hanging with this as it evolves and pivots into new technologies until I'm done working, which is, hey, we're within 10 years of that probably. So I don't, I don't see myself making any type of career shift at this point. It's always possible and people do it, but I'm quite content continuing with the group of people I'm with at the location I am. How much has COVID affected your industry? Um, we had a slowdown, especially my, my industry is very heavily um, invested in live events. So when live sports stopped in, in March of 2020, we had a several month period where there was a lot of stoppage of, of business. However, the general consumption of entertainment has gone up a lot. So for us, it's you know, maybe flat to a bit of a loss in 2020. 2021 is looking very good though. So, you know, it's kind of a combination of things, but um, yeah, it, uh, other places were affected a whole lot worse than we were. We didn't have any, uh, any layoffs or work slowdowns or pay cuts or anything like that at all. You know, we didn't talk about, this is going to start affecting students quite a lot right now is the big pivot to work from home that started when COVID uh, hit. And I would basically, I would caution on anybody holding out for a work from home job, especially in, in things like our industry, the media industry, that's very relationship based. Everyone has to be in person at some point. And I think the smartest thing companies can do is maybe allow two to three days work from home, but have a couple days in a facility. Uh, even me. So before COVID hit, I was always a single employee working from my desk here in Northern Illinois. And I have staff on the East Coast in Florida, uh, East Coast, Northeast in Florida and in LA. And I'm always trying to get the group together somehow. You can't just have everybody isolated all the time. So people really need to think about when they're looking for work and looking for a job to make sure you have that personal in-person connection. Um, because if others have it and, and you don't or you choose not to take it, you're going to be left behind. So it's, it's really important to keep that balance of in-person and remote very front of mind. Any plans to be back in Mount Pleasant anytime soon? I am. In fact, I, you know, I was just corresponding on Facebook with some, some friends about getting some of the old group back together and thinking about trying to find a Saturday in the winter when the, the women's basketball team is home and it's in the afternoon so we can get some people up from, from Lansing, Detroit. I can come out from Chicago for the weekend. So yeah, looking at the winter for sure. Got to get through football season and then uh, hopefully I'll be able to see you and everyone else there in the winter sometime. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It's very much my pleasure, Patty. It's great to, great to speak with you and great to see you. That's another episode of Depth of Field, a production of the School of Broadcast and Cinematic Arts at Central Michigan University. Thanks to my engineer, Michael Pawarski, and my producer, Allison Biss. I'm Patty Williamson. Thanks for joining us.